I've been doing parables, uh, Jewish culture and, and uh, understandings of parables and things. Um, but I felt the need um, to step off that for just one Sunday um, and have some fun with uh, the passion, uh, since that's kind of the thing right now, you know. Uh, <laughs> no. But anyway, so... Um, that's the thing right now, you know, Palm Sunday, Passion Week, you know, Easter coming up, right? That's sort of what's going on, so I decided, no, uh, <laughs> always need that. Uh, no, but I, I, I felt the, uh, the need to, um, to talk with a little bit about that, to have some fun with that, because uh, one of my biggest things about the Jewish culture is to always uh, let you know or to... Uh, let you see, I guess, um, the Jewish imagery, because that's basically the biggest part about uh, the Jewish culture that I love so much, is the imagery. Everything is a picture. Everything is visual to them. Everything that they wrote, everything they said, everything they did, um, you'll be surprised at just about, um, you know, almost everything that Jesus said we would, we would apply it to our lives and go, well, this is how we should live. But you'd be surprised every time he said something or did something, it was around something that actually meant uh, something like along the lines of that in a Jewish culture setting. You know, we've talked about different things, uh, uh, you know. So I wanted to try to uh, talk a little bit about some of the things that happened during that Passion Week um, just to kind of let you see some of the cool things that uh, Jewish culture happens. And, uh, and so, and there's some cool things in there. So it's going to be more, again, just kind of a teaching thing, just kind of like, uh, you know, seeing what's going on. Um, but it's, you know, again, it is something that I think Pastor kind of uh, said it just right a few minutes ago, is that we don't take any of our blessings lightly. And I want to make sure as we go through this that as we see some of the imagery, as we see some of the things that happened during this week, see some of the things that Jesus said or did at a certain spot or whatever, um, we don't take those things lightly, you know, because I think God doesn't do anything coincidental, right? And God had a reason for everything he did, therefore everything that Jesus did and went through, there was a reason, there was a point, and God made it uh, a way for it to happen in order for his perfect plan, his sovereign plan, to uh, be prophesied and fulfilled and everything, and so uh, he went through all that, and everything that he did was for us. It's nothing else. If we were the only ones on his mind in this room, everything that Jesus went through was for. He would have done it just for you. If it was just for us, he would have done the same thing. He would have went through the same pains. He would have went through the same week for you. Because that's how much he loves us. Okay? So, as we know, today kind of symbolizes the Palm Sunday. And... Um, I don't want to hit too much on that. I'm sure it was probably talked about a little bit this morning. Uh, so, but Palm Sunday, they, he 
came in, come down from the Mount of Olives, entered into Jerusalem on this day. Okay, keep in mind also as we go through these uh, days, keep in mind that the days are different than our days. Okay, their days start in the evening. So when I say uh, Sunday, like the first of Sunday, we're talking actually Saturday night. Saturday night, 6 p.m. around that time. Sometimes that changes here and fluctuates according to moon changes and everything. But anyway, around 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. the next day. That's, that's Sunday. Okay. Uh, as far as I have seen, the, sun, the actual Sunday part, not Saturday night, but into the morning of Sunday is the actual time that he actually uh, came in. To Jerusalem, that's when he came in, and they waving the, the palm branches, the shouts of Hosanna, and uh, and things where mostly zealots are the ones who uh, were into the whole Hosanna thing. There's a big thing I've talked about that before, so I don't want to. That's that's part of the reason why I don't want to get into it a lot. Too, the time that Jesus wept, he goes into Jerusalem. Uh, and then during that day, as it Sunsets goes in the Monday is when he goes in, turns over the tables in the temple, and clears out the courts, the money changers, and the vendors, and all that kind of stuff. Now, again, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday of this week, there are things that happen that Jesus did uh, that don't specifically. Uh, quite say that this happened this day and this happened this day, but, but they are suggested and hinted at the fact that it was uh, in, within these three days uh, where Jesus did some things. Wednesday is kind of the one day that there's not a whole lot written. It's kind of, they call it like the silent day of the week. Uh, that Wednesday is not a whole lot. Now, there's possible that there were something that happened that Jesus did on a Wednesday. They just didn't, never really clarified it. Um, so, and even the fact that, uh, said like three days before unleavened bread and, and a few, a few days. And so there's, there's times where it, it suggested that the day of the week was there, uh, but nothing really says this happened on this day. So, um, but when things start to go down, let's put it that way, his Thursday night. Okay. Well, which would be Thursday night for us, but for them, it's actually what? Friday morning, right? So the, the first part of Friday, okay? So the Thursday night, the sunset of Thursday right, is actually Friday, all right? So that's when everything ends. So everything in the evening, okay? This is where they start to celebrate the Passover. This is the time that, that they're celebrating the Passover. They've been celebrating this meal. Again, they celebrate this meal for hundreds of years, ever since Moses, right? Because that's the part of the whole Passover deal they're celebrating with and he celebrates with the disciples now thing is is he takes him to this place takes him to a place that is in an upper room okay i wish i had some maps and, and pictures to show you but uh, if you can i don't know if you have like israel in your mind i don't know if anyone knows what israel looks like but if most of you know what israel looks like if you go down to the southern part of the upper city there's an upper city which is kind of um, 
to the east of the city, and it kind of goes down, and then there's the uh, lower city, which is where, like, city of David and the, the poorer part of the city, basically. But the upper city is the upper city because it's the, it's the richer place and things. Now, down at the bottom of it is a section of where the Essenes live, which is a sect like the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they also had the Essenes. Okay, and there's all kinds of different sects. Uh, S-E-C-T, just in case uh, you, you misunderstood what I just said. But there's different, <laughs> different uh, I guess, groups of Jewish leadership. And so uh, the Essenes is part of the little area down south of the upper cities where the Essenes live. And in that area, there is certain spots there where they believe uh, where the upper room was, where they had the uh, Last Supper. Jesus takes them to this place, and it all talks about where the Essenes went into. There's a gate uh, there that's called the Gate of Nowhere. It's kind of a cool little thing. It's because that's where um, the Essenes are like really traditional, even compared to the rest of uh, most of the other uh, groups and leaders. They're real traditional, and they believe in a the scripture that says you can't use the restroom in your uh, in your camp is, is what it kind of says. And so, since camp stopped because you know they stopped moving around and they settled in one one spot when once they crossed the river, they settled here. And once camp stopped, they decided, well, Jerusalem is camp, and so they go outside of the walls to use the restroom. So that's the that's why it's a gate to nowhere because there's Nothing there except for, yeah. So that is around in that area, and then certain names of that spot would suggest the area of where um, Jesus had the upper room. Also, another reason of the Essenes is because in that culture, it's very unlikely that you would see a man uh, doing any kind of, like, I guess, woman work, if you, if you want to put it that way. All right, and one of the jobs that women did was carry water and big uh, different things. And so when Jesus tells them, go and find a man carrying water, it, most of the other different spots of the city that highly be unlikely to be anywhere else except for in the Essenes because you know um, some of the things that they did were not quite the same as everyone else. So that's part of the whole idea there. As well, so they go into this uh, place where they had um, a place where, in the middle of it, inside of this, in the upper room, inside the middle of it, they would have their dinner. Now Jesus is the host of this dinner because he took his disciples to host the Passover with his uh, disciples. Okay, now uh, traditionally. If you want to look at the Lord's Supper, I know I don't know how many of you think of uh, I guess it was Michelangelo or oh, who was it, Leonardo, one of those Ninja Turtles that uh, drew the the Lord's Supper with Jesus in the middle, you know, in the in the big long table, and it's called the Last Supper, you know. And so, <clears throat> obviously, we kind of think most of us know that really isn't how the picture looks. Uh, 
if you want to know what it looks like, basically it's like a, a U-shaped table. It's either a U-shaped table or it's a square table. They've had traditionally both. Most of the times it's a U-shaped table. They all lounged on the outside. Now they either would sit crisscross or they would lounge, which meaning is that their feet would be uh, out and then they would lean on their elbow. And typically it would be their left elbow and then they would eat and move everything around with their right arm. And so they would lounge. And the reason why they didn't crisscross during this Passover and that they would lounge is because during Passover, they believe that uh, one of the things about Passover is that everyone's equal. Okay? And so what lounging was was more of a, a leader type person, a king, a ruler, or something like that would be the one that would lounge whenever they ate. And so since during Passover and some of their uh, traditional meals, they would consider everyone equal at the table, everyone would lounge. Uh, so, and that's part of the reason, too, I think that it was so easy for Mary to wash Jesus' feet as he was at the table. Because she didn't, like, get under the table. I mean, I think she was able to wash his feet because he was lounged out. The feet was away from the table. All right, so uh, there was lounging at the table. They would, like I said, they would all lounge around this U-shape. In a U-shape, whether it was a U-shape table or a square table, they still sat in a U-shape on the outside. No one would ever, if it was U-shape, they would never sit on the middle. Okay, that was uh, some of the serving would serve to the middle of the table. So the servants would bring the food, bring it to the middle, and they spread it out. <clears throat> and as they laid there at the, ta- at the table... Like I said, they would all lay on their left arm and eat with their right. So if you're on this side of the table, you were leaning this way. And you're eating and be able to talk to everybody. And therefore, as you were around the table, this is kind of how you sat. Okay? And so you would lounge and everyone kind of same way all the way around. And they would eat. Now, one of the things about the way they lounged... Now, if you were the host, you were the main person in charge, where would you normally sit? At the head of the table or like in the middle, right? Well, in Jewish culture, and I, don't, I, I couldn't find why, and I would. I would sit for hours trying to find why, and I literally couldn't find why. Um, maybe y'all can find why and tell me. But, um, but the head, the host of the event or the, the, or the thing would, would sit at the second to the last spot on this side, okay? So the host was Jesus. So the host got to sit at the second to the last spot, okay? Now I'm guessing part of the reason why they sat there was uh, of who he was having the guest of honor. Now you'd have two guests of honor. You had the number one guest of honor and like a secondary guest of honor, now the number one secondary, uh, the number one guest of honor would sit at that front spot, okay, in front of the second person, and then the number two guest of honor would sit, lounge behind you, right? And so, uh, according to that, then you have all the other disciples, and then the very last person on this side was considered traditionally the foot washer. Now, this is the person who was supposed to wash everyone's feet, okay? Now, with that in mind, Jesus is the host, okay? 
Because we know that Jesus is the host, we also know who his number one guest is. If, you, if in the scripture it says there was someone who leaned against his chest. Do so you want to know who that was? Be John. So John was his number one guest. Right? And then we know who sat behind him as a second. Because every, third, every three people who sat together had one bowl to dip in. Okay? And so every three people had a bowl that they would dip, all three people would dip into, you know, into the bowl for different things. And so uh, when Jesus asked, the person who was going to betray me is going to dip with me. Okay? And so therefore, the other person who dipped into the bowl with Jesus was Judas. It is assumed through uh, traditional culture that Judas was the second person honored guest, which is crazy to me because Jesus knew before the whole uh, Last Supper who was going to betray him and still made him second honored guest. Of course, he made it all possible to be able to uh, have his plan fulfilled and, and pulled out. Now, a cool little, little fact about the uh, foot washing it is, it is assumed a lot, and I don't, I don't deny the assumption, but it's assumed a lot that there was no foot washer, and no one wanted to wash the feet. And then Jesus stepped up and said, well, I'll wash the feet, since none of y'all are going to do it, right, kind of deal. And so, but that's, that assumption I can, I can see, but at the same time, according to uh, tradition, there's also this idea that Peter was over here at the foot washing and had already washed everyone's feet. And because you're not because it was during dinner. Because no one's going to eat before the foot washing. Because it was during dinner that Jesus says, I'm going to get up and wash feet. And so that's why Peter was like, well, wait a second. I, you know, not that I already wash feet, but it's, you know, let me do it because that's what I'm supposed to do. And so there's this idea that Peter is the one that was the foot washer. And then Jesus is like, no, I'm going to wash. And he's like, well, let me wash everything, you know. And so, um, and so no, it was this whole idea of um, Jesus showing, you know, who's a servant and all this kinds of deal. So uh, the application and everything that y'all heard before is all the same, and uh, and things. And so, but it's it's interesting to know uh, through different ways of how it was supposed to be, who was sitting where, and uh, and all that. So we have Thursday night, Friday morning, like, however you want to put it. Uh, them celebrating Passover. All right. And during this time is, is Jesus giving Passover a new meaning, all right? And so late, late Friday, or early, early Friday, I guess, late Thursday evening, all right, Jesus, then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this is really cool stuff here. Now, if we, uh, if you look at the map again, traditionally, or uh, most people think that when Jesus left, now you get south here, 
All right, and so if you were looking at a map, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is kind of east of the city and kind of north a little bit uh, of the city, in between the city and the Mount of Olives, uh, around in that around that area, uh, closer to the Jerusalem city, but uh, up in that area. So it's kind of a long walk to get up and cut through. Right. Now, the uh, one of the cool things is on that route. It suggested that he walked uh, up on this porch side of the temple. And the reason why I believe that is uh, to show people a certain spot. Now, there's a certain spot on the temple where you have all these different things like the, the beautiful gate, and you have uh, the, the Solomon's porch, and you got all this... Uh, deal going on, but past the, the gate going towards the temple, and inside there you have all these grapes that were planted and purchased by the rich, and they, uh, one of the things I found is Herod is actually the first one who purchased, um, the, uh, or was able to fundraise, I guess, or whatever, put grapes there, and they say these, these golden grapes are so expensive and you're, we're, they're talking like millions and thousands of dollars, uh, even back then, uh, amount of money, and all these things. And they call these the true vine. And that's what they call it in, in Greek. And so, uh, so the, the Greek name for this little garden area past the beautiful gate and on this porch is this true vine. And I believe the route taken through there was pretty cool because when he was praying and he calls himself, I am the true vine. Now, the garden itself is very, very cool and very uh, significant. Most of us think of a garden like a garden with a bunch of trees or plants and things like that. Now, Gethsemane actually is broken down into uh, a couple words that um, mean... Like a press pressing oil, if you if you want to um, break it down to just a, a simple way to understand. So the Garden of Gethsemane is a is a place that they actually pressed oil, pressed um, olives. I mean, for oil. Okay, and how they would do this is it was not necessarily they would have uh, a, an orchard, I guess for. Uh, the olive trees and different things, but there's a big place where uh, they have stone buildings and, and even uh, cave-like buildings, and in the cave-like buildings is where uh, they would press the olives, and inside these places, it, basically what it was is you would first take this round, like a wheel thing, but it was like this massive stone wheel and they set it down inside of this big bowl, uh, like a circle bowl, and they just wheel, and they had um, a stick that would go through the middle of it, and they walk around it. Some have a donkey that would walk it around or, or, or whatever, some type of animal that would walk it around. And as it, what it would do, that stone would just constantly smush and press down on these olives to uh, start making certain, uh, a certain uh, texture, I guess you would say. Then they would take this and they would put it inside of, uh, inside of this cave-like area, 
and inside of there, there's this all kinds of uh, things going on. You would have like this flat bed of an area with a bowl, and then that's where they would put uh, the these this texture of olives that was already smushed, set it on there, and then they would put these pillow type baskets, this woven type baskets set up on top of them, like three or four of them. And then on top of that was this stone. There was this heavy stone that was set up on top of that. And then on top of that was this beam. And this beam would go across to this, into the stone of the cave. And, it would, and then the other side of it would come across over and have these three massive weight, weight stones on top of it. Okay? And then as they would add weights of the stones, it would press down in the middle, pushing and pushing. It was this long process of pushing and smushing and and the weight would, would smush down on these um, olives and this texture, and it would just keep going until it became like nothing but juice, okay? Oh, another interesting thing, that, that wheel thing that you would wheel off, they would take the very top skim of that texture of olive, and in that they would process, and that would be the uh, the what they would call the true um, oil. Uh, we would call virgin now, the extra virgin olive oil, right? That's kind of like how they would get that is because that very top uh, part there, the olive. And so then they would take it over to this, uh, you know, beam mechanism type thing and, and they would press and they would add weight and they would press and they would add weight and they would press and it would just keep going until... Um, they would do this. Now, it's in springtime that this was going on. And uh, if you know anything about olive oil making, I guess, this isn't the time that that was going on. There was no olive making. There was no, you know, the trees were uh, just about to start to bloom and all this kind of things. And so there wasn't a whole lot of, of this making olive at this time. So the press areas, these cave areas, were kind of empty. Okay, we're, we're, kind of, we're kind of abandoned. A lot of people would use these areas as places to stay. If you need a place to stay, you can stay here. Now remember, Passover is a huge deal. It's one of the three times that everyone has to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And so every place that you can rent out or uh, have available is used. Okay, And we see, I think it's in Luke somewhere, you'll see that he talks about staying at Gethsemane. And so, therefore, I think that not only was the garden of Gethsemane a place that he prayed that one time, but I think that's where him, that he's, he stayed that week, uh, is what, it, what I assume according to that verse and through that uh, historical, you know, thing of people being able to stay at these little caved-in areas. Uh, so, what I think is cool about the, Gethsemane, the, the whole garden press, okay? So you have these weights that are pressed down on these olives, and it's pressing, and, it's, and, and juice is coming out of the olives, and this is the place, I believe, Jesus is there praying. And as he's praying, he feels the weight of the world, the weight of the world's sins, and, and all these different things because he's starting to you know, realize this is, this is a lot. This is a lot that I have to do. You know, and then there's even times where he's, 
you know, we see a little bit of the human in him and he's in anguish and he's, and he's uh, some uh, versions of the, of the Hebrew part uh, has, him, has him welling out, screaming, not just praying, but just like screaming out to God, God, is there any other way? Because the, the weight, and, and some translations talk about that he feels the weight, the pressure. And because of this weight and this pressure, he starts to sweat. And this pressure pours out and presses out blood. So I think it's I think it's very cool to, to see how God says in this place where olive olives are pressed my son is also pressed So late Thursday night he's praying Another thing that's really cool about uh, the Passover. A lot of times in the Passover, we think of the dinner and, and things like that, but there's a whole lot to Passover that goes on past the dinner. Another thing that there's two other things that happen before people like would go to sleep, and that would be um, there's another prayer after the last Passover, which what Jesus does. Most people are praying over it in the temple. Another thing is the watching. There's a thing overnight that you would watch. And uh, one of the things you're supposed to watch is the lamb. Okay, because when they first comes in, this, the, the lamb is the one that's picked. On, like right after Palm Sunday, there's a lamb that's picked okay, for Passover. So right before uh, the Passover happens, they, they pick a lamb, and throughout that whole time, they're watching the lamb. Okay, and so... On Passover night, they watch because uh, the very next day is when they get slaughtered. And so you're watching to make sure they're pure and different things. And so uh, there's this idea of also people going to watch with you as you go and you pray. And so it wasn't really weird for Jesus to tell his disciples, so come, come watch with me as he, as he prays. And uh, so they go out and they watch. And, uh, of course, they fall asleep while he's praying. So then there's the arrest. And the part of the reason why I believe it isn't so weird that they fell asleep. Because I think that's where they've been staying. Now, I think the, the three that he asked to come watch probably wasn't supposed to be asleep. But the disciples... If you, if you look at most of them, the disciples all fell asleep. And I think that's because they were all staying there. And another thing is, is you know, when they came and arrest them, um, one of them, you know, they, they jumped up and grabbed one, one cloth and ran off. Like one, one grabbed a, a, one cloak and they ran off, like ran off naked. Okay, because that's where he was staying. And so, uh, because... If they were just visiting that area, they would have had, number one, they would have two, two clothes. Uh, they have an inner garment, and then there's an outer garment, and different things. And so, 
if they were just visiting there, they would have had both garments. So, so they grabbed one garment and ran off. So that was there. Then there's the arrest. Jesus takes them, and then they go to trial. Now, basically, they come back to around that same area of the Essenes area because uh, a little bit further west of that is where Ananias' house was, and that's where the first trial came, where Jesus had, uh, if you count them, he had actually six trials that he went through. Six trials of, of different people that he went before to be, uh, I guess, uh, sentenced to the crucifixion. The first three were all Jewish trials. Now, the first three were all uh, done in, in Jewish religious type of trials. Okay? The first one uh, done around 2 a.m. ish. You know, he comes to Ananias, the high priest of the Jews at the time, or one of the high priests, or, the, or, or he was an ex high priest, he was one of the high priests at the time. Uh, it was kind of a pre trial. Of this one, this one kind of says if he is worthy enough to go to the high priest, uh, which is Caiaphas, uh, or yeah, and so, um, so they would take him there, and they would have the trial, be questioned, all right. So it was uh, it was questioned about if he was unauthorized. To held at night, and uh, so they were trialed there about him being, um, you know, trying to start up a whole thing. And so, uh, but the reason why it was moved quickly was because of the time of night it was. Uh, they said, well, it's, it's really not supposed to happen during this time of night. So they moved him straight to. Um, the next the next place. So he was there for about an hour and a half, according to a lot of different things. Um, but the, he automatically was found guilty because of the way people were talking. Taken to um, the next high priest and the, the members of the Sanhedrin were there at the next place uh, charged with blasphemy. Blasphemy claimed to be the Messiah, uh, but not just the Messiah, but the Son of God. All right, um, and so now there's a whole there's a whole um, thing with that of, of being Messiah and and Christ and and stuff like that that I could probably go into some other time. But um, but claiming to be the Son of God is what became the uprise. Okay. So, again, the time of night, um, they could not come to an actual agreement, but they did decide that he was guilty of blasphemy by uh, just common consent. And again, the time of night couldn't do it, so they had to move him to the actual Sanhedrin place. They take him to the Sanhedrin. And it's during all this time that Peter's denying Jesus and... Uh, you know, because he doesn't want to get caught with them 
and things like that. So that's the reason why Peter could still be around to know what's going on. Because once they pass up into the pilots and and uh, and all that kinds of deal, he wouldn't probably up in there. But um, so he actually goes to the Sanhedrin before the the all the ruling of the Jewish uh, authorities, charged with blaspheming, claimed to be the Son of God. Right now, remember, Rome is not interested in blasphemy. Okay, so this would made it sort of a a uh, religious trial. All right. So also at this time, during this time of this trial, I think it's kind of an interesting thing that I saw was that there's this old game that used to be played. And they say it was started as a kid's game, um, but I hope not. <laughs> but uh, they started this game. And this game, basically, what you would do is you would blindfold the person, and then you would take like a, a stick or a pole or something, or you can use your fist, and you would just you know punch them or hit them and things like that. And then the person who's blindfolded has to guess who hit them. And if you guessed right, then you take the blindfold off, and another person comes. Now, whether that was true of the kid's game, I hope not, but... Um, but it was a traditional Jewish game uh, that was played. I can't remember what the name of it was, but they would play this, and they would blindfold and hit and ask, uh, who hit you? And, uh, and so there's these, um, that during this little area, um, now the uh, Pharisees, believe that the prophecies end with the prophets, okay? And so when they would play this, there's this assumption that someone, I just saw this, but there's assumption that someone says that uh, that was part of the reason why they would say to him, they would blindfold him and they would hit him. There was, I think it was a Josephus comment that actually has this game written down. And so... Um, because this game's written down by them, they're, they're talking about the game. And uh, since the Pharisees don't believe that the prophecies ended with the prophets, that uh, they would hit him and say, who do the prophets say you are? And so that kind of correlates with actual scripture that does say, who do the prophets say you are? And, uh, and all this, and why you say you're the son of God? And so... Um, so that's in there. I thought that was kind of a cool little deal in there. Um, so then they would take him up and then now we're having actual Roman trials. The interesting to note that in all three of the Jewish trials, uh, each one of them found him guilty in, in some way, whether it's just common, uh, you know, deal that everyone thinks it is. The last uh, Sanhedrin um, declared guilty of the blaspheming uh, by the Sanhedrin and sent to the Roman governor. All right. And they believed that death is the penalty for blaspheming. So they sent it to the Roman uh, government to be uh, put to death. So now around 630 in the morning, He's taken to Roman civil trials. And he goes to Pilate, 
the governor of Judea, all right, with, who is uh, a gov governor of, um, like I said, the, that well, area there um, given by Rome. When he's brought there, he's accused of uh, treason, which was worthy of capable punishment in Rome. Okay? And it's illegal, uh, yet held even though found innocent by Pilate. No defense. He had no defense attorney. He had no one there to defend him. And so he wasn't quite sure what to do. He finds him innocent, uh, which should have ended the trial. But he went ahead and sent him to Herod um, because of the mob and everyone all around. Okay? And, and you can see this in John. Uh, I think it's 18. Uh, the mob overruled him, so he just sends him, moves him on to Herod. Okay, so in Luke 23, we find him at Herod. Now, the difference between Herod and Pilate, Pilate's just kind of like someone that was put in charge, okay? Uh, according to a lot of scholars and things, he was kind of like a, a ditz uh, of a person. And so that's part of the reason why the mob was able to overrule uh, his, his deal. Otherwise, if he was like a strong Roman person, sort of like, um, Herod, he would have said, uh, no, that's my word. And if you come at, if you don't believe in my word as a Roman person in charge, then I'll put you, you know, that's the way most uh, Roman uh, authorities were. But he was kind of like, he, he didn't want to offend anybody, kind of Pilate. He was uh, kind of deal. They sent him to Herod. Now, there was technically no accusation. It was kind of this mock trial, is and because there was this this mob violence. Okay, there was uh, so if you if you want to look at it as a trial, there was no no grounds, um, mockery in the courtroom, violence, uh, no defense attorney, all these kinds of stuff, and so um, it was here that he's mistreated and mocked. Okay, and why he's mistreated and mocked and returned to Pilate without uh, a decision. Okay, so it's kind of like a, a, a mistrial kind of deal, hung jury, I guess if you want to call it. And so, um, but he sends him back to Pilate. He says, he says I'm not going to deal with this. You know, this ain't uh, my deal. I don't want this violence in my place. <clears throat> sends him back down to uh, Pilate. Now here the mis the mistreating and the mocked. Uh, now I found something kind of interesting. There's this another game that's played by Roman soldiers. Now it's an old game, and what they used to do is, is Roman soldiers used to do is they they call this game like the the game of the king, and they would pick some poor like rookie you know new coming uh, person and they make kind of make fun of him a little bit and they would call him a king. And they would put, uh, not thorns, but they would put like a crown on him and they would put a robe on him and then they would mess with him and beat him and then they would throw dice or lots for his clothes and all these kinds of things and they would make fun of him 
And then they would throw dice to see who would get to kill him. Not really, but it was part of the game. Okay? And all this. Now, Julius Caesar says, this is not good for morale for my soldiers. Okay? So he put a stop to this game. But tradition and, and uh, different people has, has said that the game continued with prisoners. So the Roman soldiers kept playing the game with prisoners and different things instead of their own soldiers. And so uh, I find that kind of interesting that uh, no, other, uh, no other group of people did things like this. Now, we talk about all these different things, even the cross itself, but no other people did things like this. Now, if you understand that there's prophecies that were fulfilled in the sense that Jesus was put with a crown of thorns and a robe on him and beaten and all these kinds of things and mocked, okay? There's prophecies that, that are fulfilled uh, from the Old Testament suggesting all these things were going to happen. And I think that's very interesting that uh, God has this... Uh, these, this game, I guess, and these things set up through this, these people that would be able to fulfill his prophecies and fulfill uh, what he wants done according to his perfect plan. And so here we have uh, Jesus being mocked around this time, you know, with all the violence and different things. We see even the casting lots of his clothes, even at, this, at, at the cross, and so the game continued all the way to the, um, to the crucifixion. So we have then sent back down to Pilate for the second time. Again, uh, charged with treason. And here's where Pilate again, trying not to, trying to please the crowd. Instead of being the firm guy that says, you know what, I don't see anything wrong. You guys are coming at me with this. And this doesn't make any sense. I'm a Roman citizen. And I'm a Roman authority. And what I say goes kind of deal. Instead of doing that, he says, all right, well, it seems like people are just going to get way upset about if I make the decision that he's innocent. So this is what I'm going to do. He washes his hands kind of deal, right? He says, I find no fault in him. Therefore, again, he's found innocent. So technically, throughout all three trials of the Roman trials uh, deal, he's found innocent. All three trials of the Jewish trials, guilty. Roman trials, innocent. But because of the mob and the people out there um, wanted Jesus to be crucified, there's just also a little bit of a, a story. I don't know if a lot of people's ever wondered about the whole Palm Sunday, Hosanna, Hosanna, we love you. And like seven days later, they're like, crucify him, death to you. Right? Now, again, here's a pilgrimage going on. People are in the city. It's early in the morning. Most of the people who love Jesus, okay, at this time are probably asleep outside in the cities, okay? Even like um, his disciples, they were in the garden and they've ran off, okay? Now that Peter followed him around and there's probably a couple of them that probably followed him around too, but Peter followed him around a little bit, but most of the disciples ran off, 
most people are sleeping because I mean, it's early in the morning. And so um, there is suggestions through different uh, Jewish scholars and things that the Pharisees uh, kind of set the whole thing up to where they went and woke certain people up and got them ready to, uh, to come and, and help you know, do the whole mob thing. And so here they're, they're uh, uh, yelling, crucify him. So Pilate decides to go with the crowd. He says, crucify him. Then he says, send him on. Now, then they go to Golgotha. There's a couple of places, uh, like if you go to Israel, there's a couple places. There's a Protestant place where people think that he was crucified. And there's a Catholic type place, a uh, church there um, that get crucified. Now, according to the Jewish um, people that go through there, a lot of them believe that the Catholic spot is the more uh, right, the, the most right spot because of how the heel is. Uh, they believe traditionally that, you know, we've seen pictures where you have like this big mountain heel and then the cross is up on top, this, this top, and everyone would look up to this uh, area. But traditionally, you, the Roman people wanted to see, almost look into the eyes of the people because, I mean, it was more of a, uh, you know, this is an example uh, for you not to cross the Roman government. Okay? And this is one of the worst examples that the Roman uh, uh, people had. So they wanted you to see, to look into the eyes of how the people were uh, crucified. And uh, <clears throat> now I've seen several different things. A lot of them suggest that the, the cross wasn't like a lowercase t, but more of a big capital T. And so uh, to a lot of Jewish people, a lot of Jewish scholars believe that the cross is more of a, the, they got the top section and then come down. And it was only, like I said, maybe uh, the, the bottom of the feet was maybe about uh, two feet above off the ground. So it was kind of low and there was a lot of people being able to see it. So being like right on the edge of this cliff area is uh, traditionally highly unlikely to be right near where the skull look is. I don't know if anyone's ever looked at Golgotha picture where it kind of looks like two eyes of a skull and stuff because so, technically that's what Golgotha means is the, the skull mountain kind of deal, or the heel of the skull or something like that. So you have, uh, have it right in that vicinity and they were there being able to look and everyone almost could be able to see or you know a bunch of people would be able to see what was going on. Again, and then uh, I don't know how much, I don't want to get too much into what he's going to do uh, Easter, but uh, all these things that happened while he was on the cross was more of a, uh, the cross, I'll just, I guess I'll just say this. The purpose of the cross was not the uh, nailing into the, to the wrists or into the feet. The purpose of the cross was to suffocate somebody, okay? To suffocate somebody, and that's the purpose, okay? Because of 
the, the beating on the back. Again, I didn't get into the flogging and stuff because I know he's going to talk about that. So, um, but the beatings on the back, the nailing to the cross and everything that he had to go through, the mockery and the things he's been up all night and all that kind of stuff. Um, the purpose was to suffocate. And what would happen is, is why he's on the cross, you're hanging there and the way you're hanging, your neck, you just, you just didn't have any like uh, strength in your body to just lift your neck up to breathe. So the only way to breathe is to actually pull yourself or to push on the feet where you're nailed or to pull on those nails to lift your body up to be able to breathe and then come back down. And so the, the pain there is unbearable. And what makes it one of the worst, still to this day, I believe, one of the worst um, sentences to die uh, for that. So, getting all the way there. Again, the purpose of this, this uh, lesson is basically to just show you what he went through. So not only was it uh, an interesting thing, or not only was it uh, to show you some traditional things that happen or to um, let you know what really happened or not, that wasn't the point. But the point is, is to say, again, we're not going to take what he did lightly. And that the things that he went through, the things that he had to deal with was all for us because he loved us. And again, if, if we were the only ones in the room, this, this room, if we were the only ones that he would have to do this for, he would have done it all again. If he was like, you know what, I'm just going to, if I have to die just for the people that are in this room, I'm going to do it all again. Because that's how much he loves us. And that's how much he cares for us. And that's how much he wants us to be with him. Because again, the whole death and the rec uh, resurrection is not only to to take away the punishment for our sins but it's also to reconcile us with him in Jewish culture the whole point of uh, salvation is not technically being saved but it's reconciliation and so when Jesus being the one who's is our Savior. He is the one that reconciles us back to the Father. And we get the chance to be able to be with Him for eternity. And again, He took all that so that we don't have to take any of that. We don't have to take any kind of punishment for the sins that we've done. Because... We've all declared that we've messed up this morning. But we don't have to take any of the payment. As we have Jesus, as we remember Jesus and to know who he is and what he did and why he did it and allow him into our hearts and into our lives, the punishment is gone. The victory is won from the resurrection. So tonight, as I explained all these different things, that's basically the only thing I could 
want us to take away is throughout this week, let us remember what he did and not take it lightly. And celebrate the resurrection. Next Sunday morning, that's the purpose, is to celebrate. So we live our lives in worship to Him in our actions, in our attitudes. You know, church is not the place that we come, that we're the only place, the time that we come to worship like that. We come to church to celebrate. So let us celebrate the fact that even though he went through all that and he did all that because he loved us, but he's still alive. And I'm going to worship a God who can go through all that for me and and then be alive. Let Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you.